Welcome to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA players, legends, and the top instructors in the game share their insights and playing lessons. Join Chris every Tuesday night as he talks with the greats of the game. Tonight's show is sponsored by the French Lick Resort, the PGA Tour Superstore, the Bobby Jones Apparel Company, Ben Hogan Golf, Two Under, Taylor Made Golf, and Golf Pride. Now, here's your host, Chris Mascaro. Good evening, folks, and welcome to Next on the Tee. It's always a privilege to get to spend this time with you and being a part of your weekly golf content. Please don't ever think I take it for granted. I really appreciate the fact that you're here. I want to start off the show by saying hello and thank you to one of our sponsors, the Macklemore, which is a fantastic community resort and golf course just 35 minutes outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee, up on Lookout Mountain. And folks, I know I say this every week, but you got to see this place to believe it. Check it out by going online to themacklemore.com. Everything about what they have up there is beautiful. Golf course is co-designed by our good friends Bill Bergen and Reese Jones, and our friend and PGA Tour caddy Kip Henley said that outside of Pebble Beach, it's the most beautiful 18th hole he's ever seen, and Golf Digest named it the best finishing hole in America since 2000. See why both of them are saying that by checking out the course and the resort online at themacklemore.com. Okay, on to tonight. My first guest is going to be 2019 Champions Tour Player of the Year and the guy with the biggest forearms on the planet, and that is Scott McCarron. For those of you who are around my age, do you remember Steve Garvey, former Dodgers All-Star first baseman, also played for the Padres? Scott reminds me of him with the big forearms and the powerful through-the-hitting-zone swing. And it's kind of ironic because today, September 1st, is the day in 1969 that Steve Garvey made his Major League debut. Tonight, I'm going to talk to Scott about the remainder of the Champions Tour season, the time he made his first hole-in-one on the PGA Tour, and get this, and get this, backed it up with a second hole-in-one seven holes later. Also, I want to ask him about why the reigning Champions Tour Player of the Year doesn't get an invite to the Masters, and, and should he? And I, and I think the answer to that is yes. Plus, I want to get his uh, memory. He got, he got the ride with the Thunderbirds. How cool is that? I want to hear about that memory. Looking forward to having Scott back on the show. He'll join me in just a few minutes. Following him, I'm going to get a return visit from Class A teaching professional and co-host of A New Breed of Golf, Greg Ducharme. Had the privilege of having Michael Breed on the show last week. Looking forward to catching up with Greg this week. Want to get his thoughts on this week's Tour Championship and the fact that the PGATour.com, their power rankings, list Dustin Johnson at number four behind John Rahm, Justin Thomas, and Webb Simpson. Despite DJ lapping the field a couple of weeks ago and then only losing in a very close playoff this past weekend to John Rahm on that unbelievable 66-foot putt that Rahm made. Why is DJ so overlooked? Want to get Greg's thoughts on that? We'll also look ahead to the U.S. Open at Wingfoot, which is just down the street a bit from where Greg teaches at Trump Golf Links at Ferry Point. Looking forward to having Greg back on the show. He'll join me about 25 minutes from now. Then we'll round out tonight's show with a return visit from former PGA Tour pro and short game guru, Kenny Knox. We'll get some short game and putting tips from Kenny, plus his memories of being a part of the field at the 86 Masters and a scary event at the 1991 PGA Championship at Hazeltine when six people were struck by lightning. 
Kenny had a first-round lead in that golf tournament. That was uh, the year that we got introduced to John Daly when he came from out of nowhere to win his first major. So a lot to get into with Kenny. He'll join me about 45 minutes from now. So there you have it, folks. More great stories, tips, and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. And as always, thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with me tonight. You know, I always like to kick off the show by saying hello to my good friends Mitch and Matthew Lawrence and remind you about their great golf shows. Mitch's podcast is called Talking Golf Getaway. He and his co-host Darren Bunch. They're going to let you know about great places that you can go stay and play around the U.S. and Canada. Plus, also let you know about some of the hidden gem courses that you might not be aware of. You can stream their podcast over on GolfTripX.com. It's also available on Audio Boom, Stitcher, and Player.fm. Folks, if you love golf and travel, their show needs to be a must-listen on your podcast list. It's an outstanding show, and both of those guys are absolutely fantastic. Matthew's show is called Backspin Golf. It's my regular Sunday morning, 8.03 a.m. Eastern Tea Time. I never miss an episode because Matthew's a fantastic host. Got a lot of great guests, including our good friend Perry French at the top of the show every week. You can stream the show online by going to WLXG.com or download the WLXG app. Tune in. I promise you, you're going to love the show. And folks, this segment of the show tonight is brought to you by TaylorMade TP5 and TP5X golf balls, played by John Rahm, Dustin Johnson, Rory McIlroy, Ricky Fowler, and Jason Day. It's the hottest tour ball in golf. Now, I know you know those names, but thousands of other golfers have already made the switch to TP5 and TP5X, and it's now available in high-visibility yellow. Are you the next to make the switch? Check it out online by going to TaylorMadeGolf.com for more information. All right, now back with me here on Next on the Tee is 2019 Champions Tour Player of the Year, Scott McCarron. Let me remind you about Scott's background. He's from Sacramento, California, played his college golf at UCLA, where he graduated with his degree in history. Following his graduation, he gave up golf for a few years to help his father and their family with their golf apparel business, came back and turned pro in 1992 and earned his way onto the PGA Tour in 1994. He won three times on the regular tour at the 96 Freeport McDermott Classic by five strokes over Tom Watson, at the 97 Bell Classic here in Atlanta by three strokes over David Duvall, Lee Jansen, and Brian Henninger. He repeated in Atlanta at the Bell South Classic in 2001, winning by a stroke over Mike Weir. He's partnered with Bruce Litsky and later Brad Faxon to win the Templeton Sharks shootout three times. He and Brian Henninger paired up to win the Fred Meyer Challenge in 2002. Since joining the Champions Tour, he's won 11 times, including three wins last year, and one of those back here in Atlanta at the Mitsubishi Electric Classic. Those wins, coupled with his consistently great play all season on the Champions Tour, earned him the Charles Schwab Cup, plus the Jack Nicklaus Trophy for their Player of the Year honors. And I'm very honored to have him back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Scott, thanks for coming back on the show. You got it, Chris. That was quite an introduction. <laughs> I think, I think you got you, a lot you, of you great things in my, your career. Yeah, you might have missed my my uh, my high school scramble event that I won, and uh, maybe my club championship <laughs> at Rancho Marietta in 1991. But other than that, you did pretty good. Ah, my bad. I'm sorry. I'll put that in next time. I'll make sure I get those in the <laughs> intro. <laughs> yeah, you got it. That's Scott, you, you guys are coming off a couple of weeks up in Ridgedale, Missouri for the Charles Schwab series at, uh, at Big Cedar Lodge and then at Ozark National. And, and, um, and you guys played those tournaments early in the week, which as a golf fan, 
I loved because you guys sort of had the golf stage and really the sports stage to yourselves playing Monday through Wednesday. What did you think about playing early in the week? You know, it was actually pretty cool. We played our first tournament uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, um, had the uh, weekend off, and then uh, played Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I thought it was great, and it was really special, you know, to have Phil Mickelson come out there and play his first uh, PGA Tour Champions event. Um, I think every eye in the golf world was on our tournament, which was pretty cool. And then uh, for Phil to play the way he did, man, he made everything for three days. Pretty impressive uh, scoring there. I thought it was great. Um, you know, I think when you know all this has happened with the the COVID and everything, that for us to play on that uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I thought uh, was a good good shot in the arm for us. Do you think that's something we might see more of in twenty twenty one? You know, I don't I don't really think so. Just because uh, uh, with pro ams and scheduling those type of things, and we we played two tournaments in uh, a period of ten days, so. Um, I, I don't think we'll do that, but I, you know, if it's something that our uh, our president uh, looks at and, and thinks that we can get more eyes uh, watching us, and the sponsors would be more happy with that, that'd be great. You got to remember the sponsors, uh, sponsors tournament like to have people out there and entertain them, and and to get people out there on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday is a lot harder than on a Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So once we get back to normal, I'm sure we'll be back, uh, you know, playing our normal schedule. Scott, I want to get your thoughts on, on Bernard Longer. I mean, the guy just turned 63 years old. He's number one again in the Charles Schwab Cup standings, leading money winner so far. Uh, are we sure this guy's human? Have you ever seen him bleed? <laughs> he, he's a machine. I mean, he, uh, it is definitely uh, German engineering. It's, it's pretty impressive. But, you know, he's still working out. He's still eating right. He's still going to bed early. He's practicing all day long. Um, I think uh, as far as longevity, I don't think anybody's ever played this good for so long. I mean, you'd have to go back looking at Hale Irwin. I mean, Hale Irwin's is the only guy that's above him in the win category with 45, and Langer's creeping right up on that. But uh, he's certainly the best I've ever seen uh, over such a long period of time. Scott, you guys are off this week. And um, talk about safety, and, and you, you mentioned COVID. How, how are the Champions Store taking care of you guys? Is it, is it life in a bubble, and are you guys having to stay in the bubble this week, or how are they keeping you safe while, uh, while you guys got a week off? Well, you know, they can't really do anything when they have, we have a week off. But once we get there, we actually take a, uh, a, a COVID test, a saliva test, before we even get on a plane to go to the tournament to make sure that we don't have it. Um, then once we land – we go immediately and get uh, uh, the nasal swab COVID test to make sure that we're clear. And then once we get the go-ahead, then we're allowed to uh, come to the golf course. Um, so that keeps everybody pretty much uh, in that bubble. And once we're there on that Monday or Tuesday, whenever you fly in, you pretty much stay in that bubble. We're, we're not really uh, you know, allowed to go out in, to dining anywhere. Um, everybody's just doing room service or takeout um so the guys really try to do a good job of staying in that bubble and so far it's worked very well for us um and you know with with this covid you know and us being the champions tour a little bit older you know you might have some guys that are more susceptible than the pga tour obviously and so uh, we're trying to be extra careful and and so far we've done a great job we've had basically only one player i think test positive and that was kent jones before he even left to come to the tournament so we caught that beforehand and and uh, played it safe, and, you know, it, it's working out pretty well so far for us. 
what is it like life in the bubble? To your point, you guys getting room service and, and that sort of thing. Is it Does it feel claustrophobic at all? How are you guys sort of dealing with it night in and night out? Chris, it completely stinks. I can tell you that. It's awful. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're a pretty social tour. You know, we've known each other, you know, for 30 years. And so we're always doing dinners and getting together with all the guys and, and the wives and having a good time. So uh, th- this is really it's been awful. I mean, to be honest, uh, you fly in, you get your test, you go, to, you know, go to the golf course, you go back to the hotel room, you do that night after night after night. And, uh, it stinks. And then honestly being out there playing with no fans, um, uh, not a lot of fun either. I mean, it, it's tough. Uh, you know, if you start making a couple bogeys, uh, you don't have that crowd to kind of feed off, you know, to get playing good again. And so I, I think it's, it's a weird situation. I think you're seeing some guys on the PGA tour, uh, not handling as well. I mean, I think Tiger and Rory and some of these guys that haven't played quite as well, I think they feed off the fans quite a bit. Um, and I know certainly know I do. And uh, so I think it's a little bit, little bit tough situation. But I got to tell you, the PGA Tour and the Champions Tour uh, and the Corn Ferry Tour, you know, and the LPGA Tour have done a tremendous job of hosting these events and allowing us to play even though we don't have fans. I mean, you know, the, the TV ratings have been through the roof, which is great. But the, but the sponsors aren't really getting, you know, what they normally get out of the tournaments, and that is bringing all their customers and their clients to the golf course and entertaining. And so for them to still step up to the plate um, and host these events, and we're still raising money for charity, uh, i got to hand it to you. We have some of the best sponsors in all of sports um, across the board, and I I'm, couldn't be more happy to be a part of the PGA Tour Champions. And Scott, as you mentioned, you know, being weird without the fans out there was was the first tournament or two extra weird because you know when you when you make that big birdie putt or something, you know, hit a hit a really great shot, you know, kind of used to you know recognizing the fans, waving to the fans, that sort of thing. And and when those birdie putts go in and there's no clapping, got to be an eerie feeling. You know, it is. My, and my first back, tournament back was the. Uh, at Colonial, the Charles Schwab Championship, because I'd won the Schwab Cup, they uh, gave an invite to the Schwab winner, and so I got to play with the young guys there, and, and it was really weird. I remember I made my first birdie, and I kind of raised my hand. There's <laughs> there's nobody there clapping. <laughs> it's just me with my <laughs> hand raised. So, uh, you know, it was awkward, um, and, and it's and it continues to be kind of awkward. You know, you you get on the tee and they announce you, and there's there's no clapping. I mean, there's no nothing. <laughs> Uh, which I guess, you know, when I was first on the PGA Tour, um, I used to say that uh, I was kind of in the, always in the hot dog group. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the hot dog group, but the hot dog group is when a fan comes up and they go, oh, look, we got uh, McCarron, um, Carl Paulson, Kenny Knox. Oh, let's go get a hot dog. So <laughs> uh, it's, 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 it's kind of like that again, you know, where, where there's no fans out there. So uh, it, it is it is really surreal. Um, but, but I tell you what, I'm just – Tickled that we, we get to keep playing, even though we've lost a lot of events this year. Um, hopefully, we'll, we're going to continue with those events next year and, and have a full schedule again next year. Now, Scott, you got off to a hot start early this season. You had a couple of top tens in the, in the first six tournaments. Has it been hard to kind of restart and get the momentum going again after that long layoff? You know, it was, uh, you know, it was a five-month layoff. And, and to be honest, Chris, I really didn't play golf at all in those five months. I, I started practicing a little bit about a week before Colonial, played Colonial. Then I didn't touch the clubs again until I went back to Flint. Um, I live on a lake here in, in North Carolina, and 
we were wake surfing every day and, and I kind of used it as a, as a time in my life of just to enjoy being at home. We've moved to a new place here in, in Mooresville and, and uh, got together with, with some friends that were kind of in our bubble um, on the lake and, and my wife and I just making dinners every night and just having a great time and really enjoying just being at home and doing nothing. So uh, it was uh, the longest, you know, I've been away from golf off season except for maybe I was injured um, way back in 2006, but you know, it, coming back was hard and uh, I, I wasn't quite sharp. I wasn't quite ready. And then my shoulders started hurting a little bit from, I think lack of use <laughs> and, and my back. And, you know, I was a mess. I was a mess for the last month. I mean, I couldn't get over the hump of uh, getting my body back. So um, I had to recommit myself to the gym and, and uh, you know, all the things that I normally do just to stay in shape that I, I kind of lacked was lax on uh, over the last five months. But I tell you what, Chris, I had a great time. Um, I drink a lot of phenomenal wine. We make some great dinners and, uh, Luckily, you know, we stayed in this bubble. I hardly ever left uh, the circle. It's about a mile away from us going to the clubhouse the whole time. And, and uh, we stayed safe and, and, you know, things were great. So, but it, after having that long time off, it's nice to be back going to work. Um, it is different. It is obviously a little bit weird, but I'm having a good time going back. I just, uh, the game's starting to get sharp again. I just had my teacher, um, E.A. Tischler, come in for three days after when I got home. From the uh, from Branson, um, he's a, a teaching pro up at Olympia Field, so he couldn't do anything all last week because the BMW champion was there. So we got a good chance to some work on some stuff, and uh, so I'm excited to get back out there uh, and go to Sioux Falls next week. And Scott, like I mentioned in your intro, I read that your first your first two hole in ones on the PGA Tour actually came in the same round, seven holes apart. Tell that story, and did you play the lottery that night? Yeah, it was actually in the it, – it was before I got on the PGA Tour, and it was at a, uh, a Golden State event or California Golf Tour event, um, the Charlie Peoples Pro-Am in Alameda. And, you know, it was, it's really funny. I, I played golf all my life. I had ne- never had a hole-in-one up to that point. Uh, I was 29 years old or whatever, 28 years old. I'd never been in the group when anybody had ever had one, and I'd never – seen one and I watched a lot of golf and went to a lot of golf tournaments uh, where I grew up at Silverado and I'd never seen one go in the hole so um, I had my first one the seven iron from I think it was about 175 uh, on the fourth hole and then uh, on the 11th hole I had my second one with the six iron and I almost made another one um, that landed about an inch from the hole almost flew in the hole on the 16th hole there so um, I did play the lottery and I lost but I did make the hole run so that was good (laughs) Scott, I was looking over some videos, and I saw one of you talking about the first time you got to play with Tiger Woods and then traveling with him and Mark O'Meara, John Cook, who was on the show a couple of yep. weeks ago. You guys heading over to Ireland and fishing and all that sort of thing. Talk about getting to know Tiger Woods the person. Yeah, it was great. Mark O'Meara and I uh, became very good friends um, after my, my first year on the tour. Um, actually, a quick little story, Mark O'Meara – the last tournament of the year at that point was Vegas or second last tournament. And I played really well and I needed to finish third by myself to keep my tour card. And I didn't know Mark Mir at all. And I just finished my round after shooting 64, 65 in Las Vegas and came in and Davis love and everybody was looking at the TV and they said, Hey, if Marco Mira misses this putt, you're going to keep your tour card, you know, and 
before I could look up at the TV and, and yell, miss it, <laughs> he, he missed it <laughs> from about two feet. And, and that's what got me to get my tour card by like $2,000 that year. And so I'm in the locker room, changing my shoes. O'Meara comes in. He didn't know me at all. And he says, he says, Hey kid, he goes, I'm glad I, that putt I missed in the last hole helped keep your job because don't forget me at Christmas. And so I sent Mark uh, a, I sent Mark a case of Dom Perignon for every Christmas for the next couple of years, <laughs> and uh, we became really good friends. We we fished Anna, and then he started inviting me to Ireland uh, before the British Open. I got to go with with Mark and Tiger and David, and John Cook, and uh, we just played golf and fished and um, had had a few pints of Guinness. I think I might have had more than Tiger normally, um, but you know somebody's got to drink that Guinness, Chris. It just doesn't drink itself. <laughs> And, uh, but, but, uh, you know, getting to know Tiger was great. I mean, uh, watching him practice, watching him work out what he did, um, you know, he would eat the same thing just about every meal, um, how disciplined he was, uh, was very impressive. And, um, I'll never forget. We, we got to go back that next year, that later that year to to Mount Juliet, Ireland, where we'd actually gone to play a little practice round one day, which is another good story. After my birthday, we're both, we're all pretty hungover, but we made it through, um, but Tiger and I played in the final group there at Mount Juliet and, uh, he played the entire tournament and didn't make a bogey till the last hole, uh, which was incredible. And, uh, I kind of gave him some grief about bogey the last hole. And so we're all in the, <laughs> in the bar, uh, having, having some pints because we're going to catch a bus back to the, back to Shannon airport and head back over. We got, you know, every, we get, the tour's got the private planes playing for us. And Tiger then is going, I think to the Ryder cup, I think after that, and after he wins, or he just wins all this money, and we're all having pints and having a good time. We see him walk by, and we're like, come on, Tiger, come on, have a beer and celebrate. He goes, nope, I'm going to work out. It's like we all looked at each other like, how are we going to beat this guy? He just annihilated us, and, he, and he's going to work out. I mean, who does that? It was, it was pretty impressive to watch what he did all those years, and i got to hand it to him. I mean, the guy, he's the greatest golfer I've ever seen play. And he's going to be 45. On December 30th, right? Five more years till he's eligible for the Champions Tour. What do you think it's going to yeah. be like oh. when he decides to come play out there? You know, it's funny. I uh, I won the Senior Players two years ago and got to play the Players Championship, and I hadn't seen Tiger for a long time. And so uh, as I'm walking in the clubhouse one of the days, he's out in the parking lot, and he's like, hey, and he yells at me, and he runs over. And he goes, hey, he goes, hey I got uh, eight more years. <laughs> and I said, so we'll be waiting for you. So. I would love for him to play. I mean, it, I, you know, the, the thing is with the Champions Tour, we have so much fun, and it's so competitive. Um, I'll never forget, I, I, I won a tournament in Boca a couple of years ago, and we went and played a pro-am or for Jack Nicholas over at Lost Tree, and, and we got to go to Jack and Barbara's house for dinner. And Jack pulled me aside and uh, congratulated on the win, and then he says, hey, I just want to tell you, um, I have one regret. He goes, I wish I would have played more – on the Champions Tour. He goes, I loved it. It was so much fun. It was so competitive. And I got to be with my friends. And he says, because once it's over, it's over. There's no going back. And I thought, you know, here's the greatest golfer that's ever lived that wishes he would have played more on the Champions Tour. Because once you're done playing competitive golf, it's over. So why not take advantage of it? And I, I've taken that to heart. I've played just about every event over the last couple of years, uh, you know, trying to support our tour and trying not to miss out and enjoying it because there will come a time where I won't be able to play anymore and be competitive and I'm sure you know as all of us will miss it so having said that the greatest golfer's ever lived 
you know, why not have Tony Mickelson come out and join us? Why not have Tiger Woods come out and join us? Um, everyone pretty much does. Uh, only a, a few guys haven't. And most of those guys have something else going on in their lives, businesses, you know, like Greg Norman has so many things going on that, you know, he just didn't really have the time to practice and prepare to, to play the way he wanted to. But most everybody else, you know, we're golfers and competitive at heart. So if once we can't play on the PGA Tour um, and we get over that fact, um, then the, the PGA Tour Champions is, is a great place to be. Scott, just a couple more before I let you go. And, and I saw that you got to fly with the Thunderbirds. What was that like? Yeah, I did. It was, you know, it was awesome. I actually got my pilot's license uh, back in 1987 when I was in college. Um, I spent a summer up in Sun River, Oregon, in Bend, and got my pilot's license, and I flew out of Santa Monica in L.A. I was in school and a little bit in Sacramento, and so flying's always been a huge passion of mine. Um, and so I got to meet some, some guys that fly for the Patriot Jet Team, um, which is a jet team uh, based out of Northern California and Byron, California, and they're all made up of ex-Blue Angels and Thunderbirds and Snowbirds and, and uh, one civilian, civilian pilot who was my, one of my best friends, Johnny Possum, boards. And these guys hooked me up with the Thunderbirds and, and got me a flight, and it was incredible. We had it filmed for um, Inside the PGA Tour, and we went up in a three-ship, uh, went up with Solo 5 and 6, and it was my guys, his last time flying for the Thunderbirds. So he goes, as long as you don't get sick, <laughs> and we're doing okay. I want to stay up here until we go bingo fuel because I, this will be my last time flying the F-16 for the Thunderbirds. So we went out and uh, took out a Nellis Air Force Base and went to their practice field and just just did everything you can imagine. I mean, pulled nine Gs, low level, upside down, 50 feet off the deck. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it's close slot. I mean, it, you just can't believe how good these guys are, how close these planes fly together. Um, it, one of the most incredible experiences I've ever been through in my life. And, uh, and then I, I, after that, I actually got to go up uh, at a Top Gun, an F-18, um, got to do a sortie against an F-16, which was incredible. Um, got to fly some T-38s, uh, P-51 Mustangs, um, some old T-6 Texans. So I, I, I love flying and any chance I can get uh, to go up and, and one of those old warbirds is, is pretty cool. Scott, I want to give you a chance to talk about uh, some of your sponsors. I know you, you're doing some work with Tour Edge, Exotics, and Titleist. Talk about the guys that are uh, keeping you out on tour. Yeah, Tour Edge Exotics is doing a phenomenal job. They're making, uh, they make best hybrids I think have ever been made. I mean, they've always been known for their three-woods and hybrids, but they're doing a phenomenal job with the drivers now. I mean, we've got uh, – quite a few guys on the PGA Tour Champions using the driver. I'm trying to work one in right now. Um, and then they just uh, sent me some wedges a couple of weeks ago that I put in at Flint, and uh, they're fantastic. So Tim Pet- Petrovic uh, got all the clubs of Tour Edge Exotics in his bag and finished second last week. So it's been great for the company to have so many guys out there playing them. And, and they've been a great support uh, for our PGA Tour Champions. They're out there every week. Um, getting clubs in guys' hands and, and dialing them all in. So it's been good to have those guys out. Uh, Tyler Swiftjoy has always been a, been a great sponsor of mine. And I love those guys, love the balls and shoes and gloves. So And then I play out here at uh, Trump National Charlotte in Mooresville, which is a great golf course, Greg Norman designed. Uh, we've got about 12 holes that meander through the lake here on the water. 
it's just a great practice facility and a great place to play and, and hang out. One of the one of the play, best places I've ever been in my life, and uh, I'm, I'm proud to call it home now. Scott, before I let you go, remind our listeners how they can stay up to date with all the great things you're doing and follow you on social media. Yeah, you can follow me on uh, Twitter, uh, Scott McCarron, and then on Instagram, Scott McCarron Golf. Uh, we try to post some things every now and then and, and have some fun with the Twitter and uh, the Instagram. And you, we're coming up to Sioux Falls uh, next week to Minihana, which is a great little golf course. And then we get to go to Pebble Beach the following week, which is my favorite place uh, to play golf in the whole world. So looking forward to those next couple of weeks. And uh, then we'll head back out, head back out west, uh, or actually out east, and play Sass and Richmond, Boca, and then finish it up at Phoenix. So a uh, short little season, but uh, we're trying to make a big push to, to the end. And then, it really isn't a season because we continue it. This is going to be a we're going to continue our 2020 all the way into 2021 and not finish up the Swab Cup till next year. Well, Scott, it's always fun having you as part of the show. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of it. Hopefully, uh, we get the privilege of having you back on the show again real soon. Chris, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. Stay safe, Scott. All the best to you and your family. You too. That's a great Scott McCarron, folks, and give him a follow on social media. A lot of fun stories and uh, rooting hard for him out on the Champions Tour and the push all the way, like he said, into next year for the uh, Charles Schwab Cup, and he's reigning champion. So hopefully Scott uh, gets the momentum back going and the shoulder feels better, and uh, we start to see him back at the top of the leaderboard real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Greg Ducharme, I want to give a shout-out to a couple of our sponsors. First, our friends over at the Ben Hogan Golf Company. When Ben Hogan founded his company in 1953, his mission was to make the finest golf equipment in the world, and that remains their mission today. They forge every club they make to provide the feel and feedback investment clubs simply can't provide. And their craftsmen micromanufacture each club to your exacting specifications in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. You'll only find Ben Hogan Golf Equipment online at BenHoganGolf.com. Visit them there today to learn about their great products and their great prices. Also want to give a shout out to our friends over at Golf Pride. In golf, light grip pressure releases power. Golf Pride engineered a secret the pros know. A larger lower hand encourages lighter pressure. Plus four technology is designed with four additional layers, which reduces tension in the lower hand to generate more power. Play plus four and release the secret the pros know. Now available on Tour Velvet, the winningest grip on Tour. Grip confidence, grip Golf Pride. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. All right, now back with me here on Next on the T is Class A teaching professional Greg Ducharme. Let me remind you a little bit more about Greg's background. He's from Rexford, New York, which isn't far away from Schenectady and Albany. He graduated from Coastal Carolina University with a degree in professional golf management. He is a Class A teaching professional at the Michael Breed Golf Academy up at Trump Golf Links at Ferry Point, just outside of New York City. You can hear Greg and one of my guests from last week, Michael Breed, weekday mornings from 8 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time on a new breed of golf on Sirius XM, Sirius Channel 208 and XM Channel 92. 
I listen to those guys every morning on the way to work, and I'm excited to have Greg back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Greg, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, thanks for having me. Uh, anytime, as you know, I, I, I love joining you. Um, I, hope, I hope all is well with you. I appreciate it. Yeah, everything great here, my friend. So, Greg, I, w- I want to start off by getting your thoughts on the Tour Championship here in Atlanta at Eastlake. In particular, your thoughts on the format of having Dustin Johnson start the tournament 10 under par, John Rahm 8 under par, and so on down the list. Do you like that format? Do you think it's hokey? Well, it's it's not my favorite format. I think there are some other ways you could do it. Um, but that being said, last year was interesting. We had uh, Rory McIlroy win, um, and he started at five under. So he was kind of in the middle of the pack. What I find really interesting about it um, is, although the shots seem to be a lot, and you're giving a lot of shots to the player who's the best player in the world, uh, in Dustin Johnson, there's only so many guys. If you're if you're sitting somewhere like where Colin Morikawa is, or maybe you're Webb Simpson and you're five or four, four or five shots back, you don't have that many players to pass, and you also have four rounds to make it up. So I, I do think it's still open to some degree. I wouldn't call it wide open, but I think there's probably uh, probably five to five to seven players who I think really have a chance of winning. Is that too many? Uh, well. Uh, that's up for debate. I mean, you yes, you have a 30-man tournament, and you only have probably less than a third of the field really in contention to win. Yet at the same time, you're trying to reward uh, you're trying to reward players for not just a great playoff, but also an entire season. And I think that's where part of their problem falls into play is that you're in the playoffs, but you're also at the same time trying to reward players for a regular season. So my suggestion. My suggestion, and it was the same last year, and I believe we talked about this right here on Next on the Key, is to separate it a little bit. Take the purse and make the make the Wyndham or or the Northern Trust, one of those two events, uh, kind of a regular season finale where you have a, a really big purse, like maybe, I don't know, maybe $35 million, maybe something along those lines. And you could be flexible with, with that dollar amount and reward the players right there for, for what they did in the regular season. And then you have a separate purse where they're playing off in the playoffs, and it's truly uh, a winner-take-all, and it, it would be separate. So all 30 guys in the field would have an equal opportunity once they get there of, of winning this thing in just one week. I think that might be a, uh, a more fair way to do it, and it could maybe get a little bit less hokey. Greg, I also want to get your thoughts. When I'm looking out on uh, PGATour.com and, and the player rankings, they've got John Rahm in their power rankings now. John Rahm ranked number one, and uh, also they think he's going to win the Tour Championship. They've got Dustin, I mean, uh, Justin Thomas ranked second, Webb Simpson third, followed by Dustin Johnson. Do you think that they got the rankings right? Do you think that's the right order? Or are they sort of overlooking an underselling DJ who – as we know, a couple of weeks ago, sort of lapped the field um, and then uh, lost, uh, obviously, to a, a, an incredible, one of the most incredible putts you'll ever see in John Rahm's at the, in the playoff last weekend. But to have DJ all the way down at number four seems a bit odd to me. I don't know. What are your thoughts? It's definitely odd. If you want to have him at number two, I could live with that because John Rahm did beat him last week. Uh, and there are some... 
there are some metrics out there. I, I have a, a friend of mine who does a lot of um, a lot. He runs a lot of data. He has a, a database system, and and you can basically run simulations on events. And if if everybody in the field played to their average, which is based on numbers and strokes gain and all that, we don't have to get into that. But um, if he did that. John Rahm would win the tournament by about a quarter of a shot. So is that real? Is that 100% realistic? No, but it means that on average, Rahm would beat DJ by a, a slight, very slightly more than two shots. So I can understand if you're going to put DJ at number two, uh, and more so than just the data and the and the numbers. It's really because he beat him last week. So you want to rank him number one? I'm fine with that. But you're going to stretch. Justin Thomas, who just came in tied 25th last week, and the two weeks before that, it wasn't anything special either. He really hasn't had a great playoff. You're going to rank him ahead of Dustin Johnson? I mean, this guy's playing some of the best golf that we've really ever seen. Now, it's a really short period, but I mean, he shot 30 under par. Um, he, he He shot 30 under par and beat the field by 11. And then the week before that at the PGA Championship, um, he came in tied second. The only major of the year, he came in, only one guy beat him. And then the very next week, it takes a, a 66 and a half foot putt in a playoff to beat him. So, I, I mean, I look at Dustin Johnson in this tournament as the guy to beat. Um, I guess I could give you a pass if you wanted to put Rom slightly ahead of him in a power ranking. But Dustin Johnson is no question the guy to beat. And I'll tell you this, Chris, he has, the, he's got this tournament in his hands. If he plays, anywhere near what he's played uh, the past the past three weeks, um, the past three tournaments he's played in, there is no question Dustin Johnson is your FedEx Cup champion. And, Greg, speaking of DJ and the, and the 30 under par we saw at the Northern Trust, do you like a tournament like that where it's, it's sort of a race to see who can make the most birdies, or, or are you uh, more in favor of what we saw this past weekend where par is a great score? We are definitely looking at what – DJ did, and we're looking at the 30-under number, and we're questioning it based on a 30-under number. But he won by 11. And so when I look at a tournament and somebody runs away, I always look at what does it take to win a tournament by one. And it took 20-under par to win that tournament by one. Now, that's something that happens quite often on the PGA Tour, and quite often the very best tournaments we get to watch end around that number. So I don't have a problem with that, especially when the conditions don't necessarily um, do any favors for making it more difficult. You don't have any wind. You don't have these um, – these, you, you had some rain in the weeks leading up to the tournament, so the greens got uh, receptive to a degree. And it's not a, a difficult golf course year over year. It tends to be an easier golf course. There's a lot of scoring opportunities at TPC Boston. Um, the second hole is a par five that everybody in the field can reach. Then you get to number four, you have a drivable par four. 18 is is extremely reachable for everybody in the field. So it's set up for scoring. And I like to see birdies. I, I really enjoy watching guys make birdies. And um, especially in a playoff, I think it, it is a way to demonstrate talent. But what I, what I want to emphasize here is that 30 under par number is not the number you judge this tournament on. That's the number you judge – what Dustin Johnson did. That's how you judge how incredible that performance was to beat a, a field of players who shot 19 under, um, which are, there were only two guys who shot 19 under, but, um, but beyond that, it took 20 under to win. He shot 30 under. He extended it just that much farther and he made it look easy. 
when the very best make the game look easy, well, it, um, they're going to go really low. And it's hard to defend players when uh, when they're on their game like DJ was. It's something that's extremely rare, and I think it should be applauded. Now, last week, uh, I think we saw a compelling tournament as well. But I think it was only compelling because it got a little bit easier on Sunday. Um, and, and over the weekend, there were 1,900-par rounds on, on Saturday, um, and, and there were 5,200-par rounds between Saturday and Sunday combined compared to, like, two on Thursday and maybe seven. I, I want to say there were seven on Friday. So when it's that difficult, um, I, I think it, it is a little bit less compelling. I, I'm, not, I'm not really interested in watching a train wreck coming down the stretch on Sunday. Now, if, if you have a round or two rounds like you did Friday and Saturday where it plays really difficult because the wind is up and the greens are firm and it's still a fair setup, but it's just playing tough, I'm fine with that. I enjoy the aspect of the game where it's an outdoor game and the elements in some degree dictate the difficulty of the golf course. And I think that's the beauty of our game and seeing the difference in back-to-back weeks, in my opinion, really highlighted that. Greg, looking ahead a few weeks to the U S open at Wingfoot, which isn't far from where you're, where you're at there at Trump golf links, at Ferry point. Um, first, have you ever had an opportunity to go over and play Wingfoot? I've, I've had many. Um, I'm very fortunate. Two of my best friends from college, and um, we've kind of spent some time in the business working together in Florida uh, and traveling around the, these various places we've always been nearby. Well, they both happen to work at Wingfoot now. So this year's been a little bit different. I haven't had a chance because of all the various policies and everything that's gone on so far this year. I haven't had a chance to play, but in the past two or three years, I've had many opportunities to play. So um, I'm very familiar with it, and I can't wait to cover it in a couple weeks, Chris. So based on your experience playing there, what are your expectations? Do you think this is going to be a a U.S. Open where the USGA has it set up very similarly from a scoring perspective to what we saw this past weekend where, you know, even par, one, two, three, four, under – is where we're going to see the the winner, or do you expect it to be a little bit lower than that? It, well, here's the the difficulty for me in assessing that is I don't know what the weather is going to be exactly, and I'll say this about Wingfoot: as as difficult as it is, there are holes that are very scorable. You have holes like I, I believe number two is going to be somewhat gettable. I, number one is the most difficult green on the golf course, I believe. Uh, you're going to get right. It's, it's going to get right in your face right away. The first green is uh, is very challenging, and that's where you're going to see. You know, you're going to your eyebrows are going to raise when you see some balls rolling around on that green. Number two, I think, is a scoring opportunity. Four, uh, I believe, is definitely a scoring opportunity. Five is a converted par five this year, so it's going to play as a par four, and I think that'll be manageable. I, I really think that hole will be manageable, but no, I wouldn't consider it a birdie hole. But then six and seven are birdie holes as well, and nine's a par five. So you're looking at almost, I would say, seven to nine holes on the golf course you can really make some birdies on. Um, but the other holes are really challenging. And if the conditions are firm and fast, fairways become difficult to hit. And even those birdie holes, well, they become it becomes really hard to make uh, pars and par is going to become a really good score. So it, it's really up in the air to the conditions. 
if there's rain, I think they can get under par. If there's not rain, um, the rough is projected to be they're, they're planning on starting the week at about five to five and a half inches and, and letting it grow throughout the week, and it, it'll get as high as six. Now, in all the times I've played wing foot, I've never played it in rough like that. And what I can say is it's a golf course that between the trees gives you a lot of width. And so you have options on the tee box. You can set yourself up to give yourself an angle at, at these hole locations because Wingfoot's a golf course where it all starts on the green. And depending on where the hole is, you have to position your ball in a certain location to access it. Now, normal day-to-day member play, the rough typically isn't so high to where you can't play out of it. So you can play the holes in what I call halves. Okay, I want to get it on the right half of the hole this time, somewhere between the middle of the fairway and the right trees. Or I want to get it in the left half of the hole this time. And that that take on a little bit of risk. You're able to play out of the rough to where you just have to get on the right half of the hole. Well, when the rough gets to five or six inches deep, all of a sudden that's not an option because you now – on most holes, won't be able to reach the green. And now you have to deal with these uh, wedge shots into really firm greens, and the scores can get out of hand quickly. So my assessment is if there's no rain, it's going to be extremely difficult. I mean, extremely difficult. I I don't think you'll see anyone near par. Uh, uh, You're likely going to see a three to five over par winner, I would say. If you get a little bit of rain and the golf course softens up, I think you could see I think you could see somewhere between six to eight under win realistically. And that may be a little bit of a runaway, but I think guys will get under par if there's rain. So thinking about the layout of the golf course, do you think it favors, you know, a couple of players that they, they, they may have a, a a leg a leg up or an edge on the rest of the field, or do you think it's wide open? It, oh, man, again, it goes back to what you have conditions-wise. So if the golf course plays soft, which is unlikely, but, you know, you never know what you're going to get. If you get, a, if you get a rainstorm on Wednesday or if, or if it rains a couple of nights throughout the week, then I think it favors the really long hitters. Um, I think they'll have a real big advantage. And what it does, it, there's a – Wingfoot's an interesting property. There's kind of a, a soft slope to it. There's not a lot of – dramatic elevation changes like say Augusta National Um, they're more gradual but there are a number of reverse cambers on the golf course number one for instance very slightly tilts from left to right and the fairway dog legs um, from right to left so it's asking for a draw when it gets really firm and the ball's rolling and it it gets going down that hill towards the right hand side it can get into the rough pretty quickly and as I said when it's six inch rough over there, that's a big difference than when it's than when it's three inch rough or even two and a half inch rough, like we often see on tour. So in that aspect, if it's really firm and fast, I like somebody who can work the ball a little bit right to left, and I like somebody who has uh, an extremely creative short game because you're going to see a lot of golf balls land on the greens, bounce off the greens, and end up where um, where you have some really challenging shots. They're going to require soft touch. Um, the bunkers are extremely deep. And not just soft touch, but, um, but imagination. You will see players in situations where they may appear to be short-sided, and they may play pitch shots all the way across the green that turn a corner, and what, what feels like a couple minutes later, the ball ends up very close to the hole. 
Uh, the 15th green is one especially to watch where if players miss left and right, they're going to have opportunities to use some slopes and, and work the ball close to the hole. So I'm looking for a player who has a, a really, really good short game. And, and I'm also looking for a guy who can draw the ball unless it's soft. If it's soft, I think you could see a guy, um, a bomber who fades it. If Dustin Johnson is going to be, uh, he's going to have a great week there. John Rahm, I think, is going to have a great week there no matter what. Because these, these players have great short games. Um, and, and they also have the ball striking to handle the length of the golf course, to handle the iron shots, to handle the rough when you do hit it in there. And that's the thing about the modern game, Chris. Even even when the rough is high, it tends to benefit bombers even more because everybody misses fairways. And when you do, um, there's only only certain players have the ability to reach the greens. And And if you can do that, you have a huge scoring advantage. Greg, I want to get your thoughts on Tiger Woods. I, you know, as you've talked about uh, throughout, uh, you look very closely at the data, the shots gained information that uh, that we have available to us now. And he's a guy who's losing strokes to the field and strokes gained putting and strokes gained around the greens. And and we've seen some of the all-time great players, people like Arnold Palmer and Ben Hogan, struggle with their putting later on in their careers. Do you think that's the putting issue right now for Tiger is just a blip, or are you worried about his short game and his putting going forward? No, it's been every event we've seen him so far this year, uh, the calendar year at least. After after Zozo and the President's Cup, we haven't seen Tiger putt well once. I don't even think he putted well at, at the Farmers, where he came and tied ninth. So Genesis was really, really struggled on the greens. Um, and then and then you saw it again at, at the Memorial, and you saw it at the PGA, and you saw it again um, during the playoffs. So he's had a really hard time on the greens. This is the biggest struggle for Tiger now. Is he has to balance a schedule, and he has to balance, um, you know, competing with a schedule where he can really compete. And the hardest part is he, he the tournaments he wants to play in are always the hardest tournaments. So you're going to save your body to some degree to go play in an event like a U.S. Open or to go play in a major or, or the playoffs or something like that. And by the time you get there, you're rusty. And these guys you're competing against just aren't. So your game's at a, at a big disadvantage. And, uh, I mean, it, it's kind of like playing football. There's a lot of talk in the NFL now where, hey, you can practice all you want. You can train as hard as you want. But – it's a it's a different physical shape. Football shape is a different is a different shape than um, just being conditioned off the football field. You got to get hit to get conditioned. And golf is the same way. When you're talking about championship golf at this high level, even a player with the experience of Tiger Woods, you're not used to that. And your skills are tested at an entirely new level. And he's not up for the challenge right now. And part of that is he hasn't had the reps. Part of it is. He doesn't have the ability to practice as much as he would like in those areas for more reasons than just his health. It's also, I mean, he's 44. He's got a family. He's got kids. He's playing soccer with them, taking them to golf tournaments. I mean, the guy's a part-time caddy now. So this is uh, some of the challenges that he faces, and they seem to be in the skill, uh, the areas that require the most skill, the most touch and finesse. And they're, one, the hardest areas to practice because of his health, um, and two, it's hard to simulate the conditions that you face when you play the tournaments that Tiger plays. 
And so he, he's really a, in an uphill battle. And I, I think he's always going to struggle as long as this schedule continues. So having said all of that, I'm guessing you don't like what you're seeing from him. So playing well at Wingfoot is probably not in the cards for him. What do you think at Augusta National? Because it always seems to bring out the best in the former champions. And obviously he's defending going in there. Is that a place that we, that we could foresee him continuing to play well because he knows the golf course so well? He may still have a chance to, to win there you know, for many years to come. I do think I do think you could see that for sure. I mean, he um, knows it better than anybody else. It would be hard to argue. Other, I mean, maybe a Phil Mickelson knows it as well. There are some guys that may know it as well. But Tiger definitely has a game plan to get around that place. Um, but I think I think back to the shot on, on number nine in the final round last year where he hit it up onto the top shelf. And, and and he lagged this putt down there with such beautiful pace. And it was the it was a, a, a two putt that required so much skill, so much finesse and touch. And I haven't seen anything I haven't seen any evidence that would show me he has that level of skill and touch right now in his game. And that's problematic. Can he fix that? I mean we're talking about a tournament in November. So I, I think there's a, a chance that he could fix it. Um but you know, years to come. I guess the good news is he's got November and April. So I would say Augusta National and maybe an Open Championship, maybe an Open Championship, give him his best chance of winning again. Uh, and I include PGA Tour events. I, I don't think regular PGA Tour events bode very well for him because he doesn't play a lot of them in a row. He doesn't get into a rhythm, and these guys are ready to go. And the events he does play, as I said, tend to be hard. So. I'm I'm looking at unless there's a change to his schedule, I'm really looking at two events that he has a, a legitimate chance of winning every year, and it's Augusta and the Open Championship. Greg, before I let you go, let our listeners know how they can stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing. Listen to you and Michael in the mornings, and follow you on social media. You can listen to us. Uh, you can listen to a new breed of golf. Um, Michael Breed and I. We're every weekday morning from 8 to 10, Monday through Friday, as you said, Sirius XM PGA Tour Radio. It's channel 82, Sirius 82 and um, Sirius 208, rather, and XM 92. And we do we take calls, and, and you can call in and get involved in the show. You can send emails. It's, it's great. So if you listen over there, uh, we'll tell you how to, how to get involved in the show. Um, you can also get me on social media. Uh, Twitter's the best way. Um, I'm at the real GSE. Those are my initials, and um, we got to make sure there's no imposters. So, so that's why you get the real GSE <laughs> there. Um, definitely the best way to get in touch with me. Um, I, I'm I'm really enjoying the Twitter space. It's so much fun, and the golf Twitter world, especially, is uh, is very engaging. So I'm having a great time with that. Well, Greg, I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your busy schedule to come back and be a part of the show. You're fantastic, my friend. I hope we get the opportunity to catch up with you again soon. And I'd love next on the tee, Chris. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you, Greg. Take care. Stay safe out there. All the best to you and your family. Hey, you too. Thanks, Greg. See ya. That's Greg Ducharme again. Uh, he's a Class A teaching professional up there at uh, you know in New York and uh, does a great job with that. And uh, I highly encourage you to check him out uh, you know online. 
and follow him on Twitter, like he said, at the real GFD, and uh, give he and Michael a listen in the mornings. Like I said, I listen to those two every morning on a new breed of golf on uh, on Sirius XM. They're both fantastic. Michael was a part of the show last week. It's a privilege having Greg come back and uh, and be a part of the show as well. Look forward to catching up with him again real soon. All right, before I get to my next guest, Kenny Knox, I want to give a shout out to a couple more of our sponsors, starting with our friends over at Finn Cycles. It's time to rethink golf. The game is at a tipping point. The young people we need in the game don't have four and a half hours to spend out on the course. Pairing Finn Cycles with a desire to play ready golf can cut playing time in half because all golfers go directly to their own golf ball. Plus, it's tons of fun. Go online to finscooters.com and click on Find a Fin for a course that has them near you. I also want to give another shout-out to our friends over at the McLemore. The McLemore Mountaintop community rests atop the highlands of Lookout Mountain, Georgia, overlooking historic McLemore Cove and Pigeon Mountain. Surrounded on all sides by state and national parks, historic land districts, and private land trusts, the resort features an 18-hole Reese Jones and Bill Bergen championship course, a gated residential community, and a planned clubhouse opening in the fall of 2020, plus planned hotel and conference center. The dramatic 18-hole course is made up of a variety of golf experiences, combining canyon holes, highland holes, cliff edge holes that are well-suited for the beginning golfer as well as the senior player. McLemore also offers a wonderful six-hole short course called the Karen. Designed by Bill Bergen, the Karen provides players with a short warm-up or cool-down before or after a round, or a relaxing way to improve one's game with family and friends. McLemore is located a short driving distance from Atlanta, Nashville, Knoxville, Birmingham, and Huntsville, and just 35 minutes from downtown Chattanooga, voted number one best town in America two years in a row by Outside Magazine. While a private course, McLemore offers stay-and-play packages for guests in club-managed properties, as well as a number of membership opportunities, including social memberships, non-resident memberships, and corporate memberships as well. For more information, please visit McLemore online at themclemore.com or give them a call at 800-329-8154. All right, now back in making his seventh appearance with me here on Next on the T is former PGA Tour Pro and short game guru, Kenny Knox. Let me remind you about Kenny's background. He's from Columbus, Georgia, which is about a two-hour drive southwest of me here in Atlanta, right on the Alabama border. Played his college golf at Florida State, where he was a two-time All-American and was inducted into their Athletics Hall of Fame in 1990. While there, he won the Jim Lee Open during his freshman year and later the 1977 Southeastern Amateur Championship. Kenny won three times on the PGA Tour at the 1986 Honda Classic, the 87 Hardys Classic, and the 1990 Buick Southern Open. He is one of the all-time great putters. In 1989, he set three putting records at the Heritage Classic. He had eight putts over nine holes, 18 putts for 18 holes, and 93 putts over 72 holes. He is currently one of the top instructors in the game. You can find him now back down in Tallahassee, Florida. You can sign up for lessons by going on his website, KennyKnoxGolf.com. And while you're on there, check out his line of wedges and putters that all look fantastic. And I'm very honored. He is back with me again tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Kenny, thanks for coming back on the show. Hey, Chris, boy, you went deep on that record, didn't you? (laughs) (laughs) You've done a lot of great stuff, Kenny. (laughs) You went really deep on my past history. That's awesome. (laughs) You know what I tell people, the older I get, the better I used to be. (laughs) Indeed. 
Okay. You know, it's it's been a minute since we got to spend some time with you. Kenny, catch us up. What's been going on with you this year? Yeah, well, I haven't been able to travel as much with this uh, COVID going around and everything. So I've been kind of stationed at home, uh, teaching a lot of golf, a lot of junior golfers in Tallahassee at Capital City Country Club in Tallahassee, Florida, where I make my home. And it's just a, it's really been really good for me and, and the kids to be able to spend so much time together and getting some golf scholarships out there and getting them all ready for college and everything. And it's just a lot of fun to, to watch their games improve and, and watching them uh, uh, decrease the number of putts they have per round. And to that end, Kenny, I mean, like I say, you're, you're one of the top instructors in the game right now and, and one of the all time greats uh, for short game and, and putting. And, and I think a lot of the mistakes that uh, amateurs like me, you know, sort of the weekend hackers we make is, when we get an opportunity to get out and whether it's going to, we're going to the driving range to practice or we're going to hit some golf balls before our round of golf, we pull out the driver, we, we hit a bunch of those. Maybe we throw a couple of balls down on the, on the putting green before we tee off and, and away we go. And we're, we're not spending the time where we need to spend it. Talk about, you know, kind of flip-flopping that, like, you know, more time on the short game, more time, on the putting green is probably where we need to be spending that time. Uh, as I grew up at Columbus country club in, in Columbus, Georgia, I, I would go out, we had a little uh, uh, chipping green and wasn't a putting green because the, the putting surface was not good enough to put on, but it was a chipping green with, with sand traps and, and rough and everything uh, out uh, next to the, uh, the 13th uh, hole uh, par three. And I would just I would spend hours and hours out there by myself, and so that pretty much ingrained into my whole philosophy of learning how to practice. I literally get bored hitting golf balls uh, on the driving range. I I lose time on the short on the short game area. I forget how long I'm there. I mean it's just not it's just I'm in a whole other world, uh, chipping and and using my imagination to hit different shots and just going, you know, just going as far as I can go, pushing the envelope as far as I can push it to create shots, you know, flop shots and, and just picking them off the grass and watching how fast they stop and, and the different angles. And, and I come from a pool player family. My, my father was a good, good pool player. All three of my brothers were very good pool players, but my my brother that's eight years older than me was a world champion pool player. And I used to rack, rack balls for him late into the night as he would gamble at the local bowling alley playing pool. And so I think that I acquired such an uh, I, uh, interest in, in creating angles on, on different ways to do things with the golf ball and the golf club that that's, that's what attributed to my short game uh, success. And so I would always push the envelope on that and see how far I could go and see what worked the best. And I know that Phil Mickelson is probably, without question, the best of all time short game uh, player. And, but he's also aided with the best equipment that, that uh, anyone could ever imagine having. I was one time when I was representing Callaway when I was on the Champions Tour, I was out there doing some club fitting, and I looked and I saw this rack of wedges and I'm like, with Roger Cleveland, who used to own Cleveland Golf, who is now the wedge man at Callaway and has been there for quite a few years and very well uh, good at what he does. 
He said, oh, those are Phil's wedges. I said, what do you mean they're Phil's wedges? He says, yeah, he uses a new wedge every week. And that just blew wow. my mind because we we were using wedges that were like, are you kidding me? I mean, that you, you could not even perform any of the tasks, any any, any of the shot making that, that the great Phil Mickelson uses. Now, he had to learn how to hit them, but a 64-degree wedge off of a tight lie at Augusta National is much different than a wedge that has 12-degree bounce. <laughs> Trust me on that one. And trying to trying to get that ball up in the air and stopping uh, from behind the 15th green at Augusta National. So there is a big difference in in equipment, and but it's also his imagination as a young boy learning how to hit the ball, not forward but by, behind him was was having great imagination. And so uh, you have to give him all the credit in the world for doing that. And you just go with the times and you go with the equipment and things of that nature. But I can assure you that we can never hit those shots with the equipment that we played with. Yeah, to take that a step further, Kenny. You're going back to you know what the what the face of the golf club was like when you played, what the grooves were like, what the golf ball was like. Talk about trying to get the the spin and the action on the golf ball that uh, that you guys had to play with, versus you know taking out the same clubs that uh, that we know today. Well, you know, my first two wins, I was using the Ping uh, I-2s and the Copper Brilliant, and I just absolutely loved them, and they were fantastic. And But all I heard was all this controversy about square grooves, square grooves. And so I said, what the heck? I'm going to change company. I'm going to change golf equipment. I'm going to see if I can do any good. And I went with the, the most beautiful club on the market. It was the McGregor VIPs, and the uh, they were so good. They were beautiful, but they did not have the square grooves. And so I was leading the Anheuser-Busch uh, at Kingsmill in Virginia one year, coming down the stretch, and on the on the front nine there, uh, I hit a shot out of, the, out of the rough on the seventh hole, and the ball stopped on the green. And after watching the telecast, Johnny Miller was criticizing me for using square grooves. And that's about the maddest I've ever been at a commentator because I was using V grooves. And so I ended up shooting – uh, a course record there of, of of 62 that we can win in the golf, uh, not win in the golf tournament, but lose at the golf tournament in the playoff. But later in the year, I won uh, the Buick Southern Open using my V grooves, McGregor VIPs, and so I was. That was so gratifying to do that because there was such a, a stigma about the square grooves and how how it was cheating to use those clubs. But they were actually very good. My first win with the Honda Classic, I, I can promise you that I would have never won that golf tournament without those wedges that Ping uh, made with the Copper Brilliant uh, square groove wedges because I was able to hit shots. On the 16th hole, my last round, when I was coming down the stretch with the lead in the golf tournament, I had a shot that Lee Trevino said was impossible. I was short of the green, short of the bunker left, and the pin was tucked tucked front left, so I had no green to work with whatsoever. And he said the best he can possibly do is get this within 15 feet of the hole. And I hit a shot that literally stopped one foot from the hole, short of the hole. And and everybody just threw their hands up. I threw my hands up. The club came out of my hand. But it was like, wow, this is amazing. So golf equipment has made a huge difference. In now since then, square grooves have been outlawed, but 
I believe the, the grooves that they have today are just every bit as good as the one we played with in 1986. So, Kenny, that begs the question, you know, when uh, Johnny talking about square grooves, when you had the V grooves, did you, did you correct him? Did you go show him the club afterwards? Did you set him straight? Oh, he, he was the invisible man. You never saw him. All you did was hear him on the telecast. He, when I first saw him uh, walking the fairways in 1986 at New Orleans uh, in the tour event at New Orleans. I can't remember the name of the, the sponsor that year. But anyway, uh, and he was walking the course, and we were talking a little bit about it. He was That was when he first got started doing the commentating. But after that – with all the controversy that he created with the comments that he made, uh, you would you would never see him on the golf course. You would never see him except in the booth. Kenny, uh, a place that uh, a lot of us lose strokes are on the on the shorter putts. I wanted to get some advice from you. So you know, you look, we're looking at a a three or four foot putt, and that's that's a, a putt we don't spend a lot of time on the practice greens practicing. If we do spend any time at all, it's typically you know, 10, 15 footers. And then we get the three or four footers a couple of times around, we miss them. And it ends up costing us a couple of strokes on, on what should be a, a, almost an automatic. How, how do you teach your students to be more confident? First of all, because some of those are knee knockers and, and we get afraid of them. How do you teach them to be more confident and more consistent with the short range pots? Uh, it's all about education. So there's only three things in putting that I talk about. And first is alignment, and which is the most important thing. If you if you if you take the putting arc robot, he will never ever. He's he's the greatest putter that never lived. And you take him and you set the ball up in a neutral position, and you line him up properly. He never will ever 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 miss a putt. But if you take a human being, and you line him up, he will miss putts, or her up. They will miss putts because they're not perfect. But he has the putting, the perfect putting stroke. So that takes me to my next uh, uh, level, is that's the mechanics of the stroke. So learn how to line up properly, the ball being in a neutral position, so that you have the proper release at impact. Now the second thing is the mechanics of the stroke. Well, since the putting arc robot does not have a head, he has shoulders, arms, hands, and then putter head once it's connected to his hands. And so all you do is you move the shoulders and the arms and the shoulders, the arms and the head, putter head, will move. And so the golf ball simply gets in the way of the path of the club. And as it does, it releases properly on a perfect arc. And so therefore, the ball will always start on your intended line. So when you're lined up properly, the golf ball will go. Now, you know, the big question is, did I line up? on the correct line. That's the hard part. And I heard your interview earlier with Greg talking about Tiger Woods, that his advantage at Augusta national is simply because he knows the greens better than anybody else. When you put him on a, a new course like Harding park, or you put him at a course uh, that they played last week up at Olympia fields, he doesn't have the confidence, which goes to my third stage of putting. So you have, you have, the, the perfect alignment and you have the perfect mechanics using the shoulders, arms, hands, putter head as one unit. And then you have to have the confidence, the trust to know that you're going to make the putt. So when you line up correctly 
then you start trusting that you're going to make the putt. That's a huge deal. The trust, now you believe you're going to make the putt. Well, if you, if you combine if you combine Chris with alignment with great mechanics, then you're going to have all the belief in the world you're going to make that putt, and that's how you become a great putter. So when you become a great putter, you're not going to make every putt. When you hit a bad putt, though, you will understand why you hit a bad putt. And so, therefore, you're able to correct it instantly and determine that my transition was too fast. So my short got stro- my stroke got short, So and my transition was too fast. So the little drill that, that Phil Mickelson put into play actually a couple of weeks ago where he was stopping his putter at, the, at his backswing and then rerouting it on the downswing without a transition hardly, that was a great drill to do that teaches you how to slow your transition down so the putter will fall on line with your backstroke. Now, the putter will open up one degree every inch on the perfect arc. So if you make a six-inch backstroke, it's open six degrees. Well, if it opens six degrees, then it has to close six degrees coming back to impact. And then what does it do past the ball? It closes another six degrees once you go six inches past the golf ball. So that's the perfect perfect putting arc, one degree open every inch. And so when you do that, the golf ball simply gets in the way of the path of the stroke. And if you're lined up properly, you'll make every putt. And, Kenny, on your website, KennyKnoxGolf.com, you mentioned that 85% of golfers can't aim the putter right and 90% can't get the ball to roll soon enough. Talk about what you mean by that and how can we get better at it. Well, the optimum launch angle on a putt is at 1.5 degrees launch angle. So if you have a four-degree lofted putter, okay, then that means you have to de-loft the putter two and a half degrees to get the ball rolling properly, okay? So what I teach for people first to do is learn how to line the putter up. I believe that the feet, hips, and shoulders should be parallel left of intended target and putter face square to intended target. So when the shoulders move, the arms, hands, putter, and move with it, then the putter face will square up at impact. Well, that accomplishes your goal of aligning the putter up correctly. So <clears throat> going back to, let's see, I've kind of lost my train of thought there, <laughs> talking too much. So anyway, <laughs> uh, the reason they miss putts is simply because they don't understand what, if the putter face is too open or the putter face is too square, then you have to be squared impact. You always have to be squared impact. Now, you have another factor that comes into play, Chris. The different type of putters that you use are very, very important. And that's one thing that I I fit people for the perfect putter because if you line a putter up one way, you may not line the next putter up the same way. So different hosel configurations will determine where you li- actually line the putter up. So what I'm saying is 75% of the people will line up uh, differently with different putter configurations. 20% of the people, or five, I should say 5% of the people, will line up perfect. When I fit Jack Nicholas for his putter, he lined up every putter configuration I could give him. Uh, he lined up perfect, so I call that my 5% club. Now, the 20% is a club that you don't want to be in because you can never line up anything. And so, therefore, you have to get lucky almost or learn how to line up properly. So what you do, if you go to my website, you'll see 
It's very simple. You put your elbows close to your body as you grip the putter. The putter head is up in the air pointing to the sky. You want to bend your waist uh, down and let, allow the putter to come down parallel to the ground. And then you simply let your arms fall from that position there behind the golf ball. That tells you a couple of things. That tells you how far you should be from the ball, and then your eyes will be on the inside part of the golf ball. So you want the putter going back on a, on a perfect arc. So you never want your eyes outside the golf ball or even, even with the golf ball. You want them slightly inside the, so the putter will rock on the inside path back and through if you're using your shoulders, arms, hands, putter head in the proper technique. So if someone is using a square-to-square stroke, what happens there? They become disconnected in their putting stroke. So what I mean by that, that's why the belly putters were so good is because they kept a connection between your shoulders, arms, head, putter head with your body. And so all you had to do was move your shoulders, and the putter always stayed on that perfect arc. But once they disconnected the putter from your body, then all of a sudden you had to find that perfect square position at impact. So therefore, it was very difficult always to find that perfect square position. So that's why Dave Peltz came up with a face balance putter so that you could take it straight back and bring it straight through. But even then, you're disconnecting back and through. The butt of that putter head will get further away from the body than it started with a face balance putter because it wants to go square back and square through. So it disconnects on the backswing and disconnects on the through swing. The greatest putter that ever lived is Ben Crenshaw, and the putter, I, I can pretty much guarantee that that putter never, ever got a greater distance away from the ball than where, uh, I'm sorry, away from his stomach uh, from where it started from uh, in a dress position, back and through his stroke. It always stayed the same. Well, Kenny, it sort of begs the question, right, as we're lining up for the putt, you know, you talk about, um, you know, sort of the process that you went through about the elbows in and, and all of that. Talk, talk to me about ball position, eyes, you know, where where is the ball, you know, with respect to our eyes? How do we know if we've got the ball starting off in the right position and it's not too far forward, it's not in the center? Where should that be and where should our eyes be in relation to it? Okay, so, so when you're lining up the putter, uh, you pick your intended line, say it's one cup out on the left-hand side of the, of the left edge of the cup. All right, so approximately four inches away from the cup. So what you want to do is when you walk into the putt, what you want to do is have your feet close to one another, aim way left of your intended stance, uh, of your intended target, and your hips and shoulders are also going to be aimed way left, and your elbows are in, to maintain that connection and the putters up in the air and then you bend and drop the putter and line it up to your four inches left of, of the left edge of the cup. Now your putter face is square to your intended target. And then, and not and until then you can take as much time as you want to line that putter face up. That's the most important thing you do. Then you separate your feet. Now when you want your feet about shoulder width apart and you want the golf ball on the inside of your left heel, if you're a right-handed player, if you're, Left-handed player, obviously, it's going to be inside of your right heel. And But remember, your feet need to be shoulder-width apart because you, that can be miscued whenever you spread your feet out further than your shoulders. 
And so, therefore, now the putter face is square to your intended target, which is four inches left of your the left lip of the cup. And your feet are now going to be uh, another foot left of that intended target, but that is parallel left of your intended target. So, therefore, your feet, hips, and shoulders are parallel left of your intended target, where your putter face is square to your intended target. So, therefore, we're always making a stroke that releases properly a squared impact and releases through the ball uh, properly. So therefore, the, you never have to change your stroke just because you have a left-to-right putt or a right-to-left putter. So what I like to do also is play the game within the game, Chris, which is going to be putting uh, 201 instead of 101. And so I will actually move the ball around a little bit in my stance to always protect the high side of the hole and all better known as the professional side of the hole. So when I do that, if I have a left-to-right putt, which I know is going to break four inches, I'm actually going to move the ball to my left toe, one ball up in my stance. So therefore, the putter has already released at the neutral position, which is inside the left heel, released. And so therefore, the ball is always going to stay on the high side of the hole. And then the same thing with the right-to-left putt, that's going to break four inches, you're going to move it one ball back in your stance. So therefore, the putter face has not released at moment of impact. The putter face is actually open at moment of impact, approximately two inches or two degrees. And so what we want to do is learn the system so that you never have to change your stroke. All you're changing is your alignment uh, with your ball position which is also going to change your path of your stroke in the backstroke a ball up in your stance the putter face will go straight back a ball back in your stance the putter will come inside and when it returns to the moment of impact it will either be closed or open and so like I said this is putting 201 it is not 101 which you teach your basic putting it is a game within the game and this takes you to the next level if you want to learn how to really putt and make a left or right four-footer to win a championship, you never want to have to change your stroke for that situation. And, Kenny, there are a lot of different shaft styles for putters, and I know that has a big impact on, uh, on you, know, you talk about degrees of open or close in, in, the, uh, in the putting stroke. And um, so I, I'm curious to get your thoughts. How do we know which kind of shaft? Is it just really based on – on confidence level and and uh, and you know kind of look and feel when we're when we're practice putting and you know we may go to the PGA Tour Superstore we may come see you uh, and trying to figure out what putter is right for us how does the the style of shaft do as opposed to us just going in and buying off the rack you go oh this looks good I kind of like it a little bit how do we know if we got the right one or the wrong one well I, I think Chris with with the modern technology today it's very important to have the right shaft however i'm not a big shaft guy <laughs> i'm a more of a field guy and so i want to feel to feel the putter head uh, which is really crazy and stupid because i set all the putting records with a a very light putter head <laughs> but i still as the more i teach the more i learn the more i putt i want to be able to feel the putter head and so what you want in a shaft is one that will consistently return and uh, to square uh, every time and that's what they're trying to achieve when you see all these different types of shafts however I think when you get into graphite shafts and things of that nature you're losing the feel of the putter uh, 
the the different players are using different shafts, uh, and it, and the reason they're using them is not unless you're Bryson DeChambeau. The reason they're using them is because of feel. I think DeChambeau takes it to a next level of technology and what he feels works best uh, from the science standpoint, and which you know frankly is way way above my head, but. He's yet to achieve the goal that I've set for myself and become the best putter uh, through having all the putting records at one time in his career. So we can argue that point all day. But I will say he's making more 20-footers than he's ever made in his life as well. But he's also got uh, having to do a lot more chipping because his short game is uh, is excellent, but his his wedge game is not real good with all the bulked-up muscle. Kenny, just a couple more before I let you go, and I want to get a couple of memories from you. I know you were in the field for the 86 Masters when Jack won. I know the two of you are really good friends. You mentioned working with him and and getting some putters for him. What do you remember about being a part of the 86 Masters? (laughs) The greatest memory, I was the only guy in the entire field on Wednesday afternoon to predict the winner of the golf tournament. Is that right? I predicted... I am, and that's on record, and that's on video as well. I'm the only guy to predict Jack Nicklaus to win the golf tournament in 1986 on video because he just happened to be my playing partner that day against Greg Norman and his partner. And so when we came off, we went to the par three course to play, and uh, it may have been Tuesday afternoon. And so uh, they were interviewing each player, who do you think is going to win? You know, and I said, well, my partner's going to win. They said, well, okay, who's your partner? I said, Jack. And so (laughs) there you go. And that used to be played uh, before the tournament every year. The Life and Times of Bobby Jones was played. My good friend Sid Matthew, who produced uh, that video for the Masters tournament that Callaway picked up and would play it every year. But that was also played as well. Jack's going to win, of course. He's my partner. So that was a great memory for me. Uh, I remember shooting 75, 76 and missing missing the cut by one shot and simply could not handle the greens uh, that week. However, I never had a, a three putt, but I couldn't, I couldn't make the putts I needed to make. And the golf course was not suited for my game as well because it was a hooker's golf course. If You need to be a high hooker to play that golf course, and I was a low fader. And Kenny, you're looking back in, in 1991 at the PGA Championship, you opened with a 67 and, and pretty bad weather conditions. I, I read that a spectator was actually struck and killed by lightning that day, which happened to be the second time that year that uh, something like that happened a couple months earlier at the U.S. Open in Hazeltine in Minnesota. Six people were struck by lightning. But, you know, being out there in, that, in those kinds of conditions – was it scary? Do you remember being the weather being really horrible? It, it, it was not that bad during the week. It had rained a great amount uh, uh, leading up to that tournament and the week of the tournament uh, prior to the tournament days. However, it was very wet. And you, w- you wouldn't think a guy that flies the ball 240 yards would have a chance to play uh, in such conditions where the ball was not rolling very well. But an excellent first round of 67, and I led the golf tournament. And then uh, I I was either leading or close to the lead after the second round. I was right there. Um, 
and then of course John Daly made his appearance and and blew the field out on the third round uh, and and took the four shot lead over me and we played together the last round of that week. He was a perfect champion for that tur- uh, for that course because uh, it was a, a long ball hitter's golf course, especially with the wet condition, uh, and he could take it over the corners and literally he would hit shots that I thought might be out of bounds on dog legs because it looked like he was popping the ball up in the air. I'm like, oh, that didn't go anywhere. And he get up there, and he's at seven iron to par fives, and I'm back there hitting driver, driver. So uh, what a great advantage he had, and he handled it very well. His short game was incredible. Uh, he started out very poorly, and I thought, well, this guy's on, you know, he's got his bad nerves. I, I think I can handle him. And then he stuck it inside a foot on the second hole. I said, oh, well, maybe not. So he uh, he had a great week. The only time he really blew it was on the 17th hole, the final round, where he made a double bogey there, and uh, he had a four-shot lead going to 18. I was still trying to figure out, can I catch this guy? Can I catch him up birdie? <laughs> but he had a great drive and a great second shot in there and two-putted for par, and he was a great champion. Kenny, before I let you go, Remind our listeners about some of the great uh, teaching uh, videos you have available on your website, KennyKnoxGolf.com, and then uh, how they can stay up to date with you, whether it's uh, it's online or it's over social media. Yeah, Chris, I like to try to educate my players, uh, you know, on how to set up the ball properly. That's on my that's on my website, the, the Kenny Knox Golf website, and uh, some videos on there talk about the different ways to control your, your short game distance, uh, you know, with, with maintaining your connection through the ball and rotating your body through. I, I, I have a technique that I use that uses the bounce of the club, and you're able to control your ball flight, your trajectory, which is going to uh, give you more consistency in your short game. Um, and, you know, I love the sand. I love the sand. Uh, and I teach a different technique. You, you're going to ride the horse and you're going to swing the arms. And it's almost like a polo player where you can't move your lower body and you're swinging your upper body. And so it, it's a very effective technique to use uh, to teach people how to use uh, the sand wedge in the bunkers. But it's all about using the bounce of the club and not the leading edge. And so the leading edge is bad. The bounce is good. Once you learn that, then you become a good short game player. And as far as putting is concerned, it's all about the transition and stroke. You want to be around the two-point to 1.0 in your rhythm, you know, one, two, one. But I tend to be much slower than that. Uh, I like a longer, slower stroke, like, like my putting hero, uh, Ben Crenshaw, uh, much, much longer, slower putting stroke. But uh, you see what happens to guys that, you know, like a Jordan Spieth who had a very one-to-one stroke, who was a great putter. And now he struggles with his putting. I hope that he comes back because I love Jordan's space uh, as a person, as as a great ambassador of the game of golf. And Kenny, one more real quick. Talk about uh, your line of wedges and putters. Well, it's just very simple. I'm I'm very low, you know, low budget. I I have a great set of uh, wedges, which uh, are all natural finish. When you receive the wedges, they are they are chrome, and they look beautiful. But then they go natural and they tarnish. So what I tell people to do is just get in the bunkers. They're much more playable uh, with the natural finish, and that's why I chose to go that direction. 
I have a 52, which is a little bit offset, a 56, which is absolutely perfect, and a 60 is absolutely perfect. The bounce on them are, are, are uh, the ideal bounce where the 60 degree has, has eight degrees bounce, the, the 56 degree has uh, 12 degrees bounce, and the 52 has uh, eight degrees bounce as well. So uh, the bounce is good on them. The shafts are just your normal shafts. Uh, they come in, uh, like I say, they come in the natural finish. The putters, uh, the record series is what I really recommend. Uh, they're second to none. Uh, they launch the ball at the 1.5 optimum launch angle, uh, which is which is if you're adding loft at impact, it still launches at 1.5. If you're de-loft at impact, you're still launching at 1.5. So the ball gets on the ground rolling uh, true and if you're lined up properly, you'll never get the skids and the bounces that will uh, allow you to miss a putt. Well, Kenny, I can't thank you enough for coming back and being part of the show tonight. Always learn something when you when you come on. I hope we get the privilege of catching up again uh, real soon. Well, thanks for asking me, and it's always my pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much. Take care, Kenny. All the best to you and your family. Stay safe, my friend. Thank you. See you, Kenny. That's the great Kenny Knox, folks. And uh, KennyKnoxGolf.com is his website. A lot of really great instructional videos. Check out his line of wedges and putters. They look fantastic. And uh, like I say, there's uh, there's no one who is, you know, he's very humble in talking about Ben Crenshaw. We all know what a great putter Ben Crenshaw was. Make no mistake about it. But um, a guy that sent all the putting records. They had 92 putts. Oh, it was 90 something putts over 72 holes. Let me look back at the number. Yeah. 93 putts over 72 holes, folks. That's, you know, that's unheard of over a tournament to only have 93 putts. And Kenny did that. And uh, a wonderful short player, a lot of magical videos out there for you to understand how to hit the wedges and, uh, and, and use the putter. And um, like I say, when, when I think about Kenny and I look at, some of those instructional videos, whether it's from the bunkers, and he talked a little bit about that, uh, or just in the regular short game. The guy had unbelievable hands and unbelievable control of a golf ball. And then as he talked about, you know, going out to the practice range and just trying to be imaginative and creative and hit lots of different shots and seeing the reaction that the golf ball had. I mean, that's something that uh, I'm trying to get my son to do. As, uh, as he starts to mature in the game, is just go out there and, and hit different shots and see what happens. And that's uh, exactly what Kenny talked about. He's, uh, he's a fantastic teacher down in Tallahassee, Florida. KennyKnoxGolf.com, again, is the website. Please go online and check it out. All right, folks, it is time for me to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. My sincere thanks again to Scott McCarron, Greg Ducharme, and Kenny Knox for joining me tonight. Please check out our website nextonthetee.net to keep up to date with what our guest schedule looks like. Next week, scheduled to join me are our resident director of instruction, Tom Patrick, will be back. Performance mind coach, John Taylor, will be making his debut on the show, as will the founder of Shoots Golf, and that's S-H-O-O-T-Z, Shoots Golf, Bill, Bam- uh, Bill Blambo, uh, will be a part of the show. Looking forward to having both of those guys on for the first time. You can stream this show as a podcast on a number of great sites, folks, like 
podcast.co. Those folks have been fantastic to me. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Audioboom, Player.fm, and Radio.com as well. Folks, I can't thank you enough for choosing to make this show a part of your golfing content. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends.